This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and be turning again to Romans chapter 8. I want you to stand together for the reading of God's Word. This morning, the message will be from verses 18 through 27 of Romans chapter 8. The title of the message, Present Suffering and Future Glory. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God may God add his blessing to his holy word please be seated As we've been going through the book of Romans, uh, the great apostle Paul has touched upon many wonderful theological themes that provide assurance and comfort to our souls, but perhaps he touches upon something very practical and very relevant here in chapter 8, because we all come to worship with the present suffering that we are facing in life. And in light of all the gospel blessings received now, as well as those promised for a future inheritance due to our union with Christ through faith, Paul now addresses the very real and present reality of suffering. Now, there are many people in our culture today, even many Christians, who view God very superficially. And here's what I mean by that. They'll say something like this, well, if God is love, then this makes him powerless because he doesn't stop evil and suffering in the world. On the other hand, you have people who say, well, if God isn't all love, then that must mean that he is all powerful. And if he is all powerful and he can stop evil, but doesn't stop evil, then that means he can't be all loving. Either God is good, but not all powerful, people say, or he is all powerful, but he is not good. He can't be both. But the above view does not take into account sin. It fails to ask the question, not is God good, but is man good? And Paul has been very clear in Romans chapter 3 that none are good. 
He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, they have together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He even says their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. That does not sound like we are perfect, far from it. It sounds like we are corrupt and worthless and sinful, and therefore not worthy of any goodness and any grace and any mercy that a holy God, a perfect God, would bestow upon us. In fact, back in Romans chapter 5, Paul told us that when man fell under the curse of God because of sin, it wasn't just mankind that was cursed, it was the whole creation. So we are dealing with the very real and powerful effects of sin when we are dealing with evil and suffering in the world. We are dealing with problems that come in cosmic proportions, not minimalistic portions. A little suffering here and a little suffering there. A little evil over here and a little evil over there. The Bible says we are ruined. The scriptures say that we are undone. And it's not just us that are undone and ruined and cursed. It is all of creation. All of creation that was placed under the dominion of man before the fall. And death itself signals this in case we forgot. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and death is unavoidable for you, it is unavoidable for me. So sin itself, not God himself, is the reason that suffering and evil exist. But since God also ordains whatsoever comes to pass, to follow the language of the confession, and yet is God himself not the author of evil. He does at the same time use suffering for his good and glorious purposes. God ordains suffering, first of all, to reveal the power of divine miracle. In John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God ordained suffering to reveal the power of divine miracles. God ordained suffering, for example, in my life and in your life to at times display His glory and His power in the midst of great pain. God also ordained suffering not only to reveal the power of divine miracles, but secondly, to rebuke sin in the church. Paul told the Corinthians, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you die. God ordained suffering in an effort to rebuke sin to purify His church. God also ordained suffering to require sympathy with and for other sufferers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that God comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. In other words, God ordains suffering so that you can sympathize with others when they are suffering because of the suffering that you have been through. Number four, God ordains suffering to remove pride. This was certainly true in the Apostle Paul's life. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. God ordains suffering, therefore, to remove pride. He ordains suffering to reveal the power of divine miracles, to rebuke sin in the church, to require sympathy with and for other fellow sufferers, to remove pride, and He also ordains suffering to reprove 
His children, Hebrews chapter 12, says that the Lord disciplines the one He loves. He chastises every son whom He received. Throughout Romans chapter 8, Paul has highlighted the status of Christians as God's sons, as God's children. So all Christians, that is, all who are sons of God, after studying Romans chapter 8, should be able to agree with what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. In fact, Peter is very helpful on this subject of suffering. He sort of sums up all of the truths that Scripture teaches about suffering in a couple of verses. He says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's another benefit of suffering, Peter says. It reveals our faith. So let me be clear this morning. Your suffering is not an illusion. It is real. Your grief your mourning, your pain, your trials. It is all real, and guess what? God has ordained all of it. Job said, For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. Those throughout biblical times were very clear about confessing their suffering. Jeremiah said of his enemies, which were God's own people Israel, Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, for you showed me their doings. I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. They had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. That was a common reality for the prophets and even for the great apostle Paul, he speaks about his own suffering, oftentimes at the hands of his fellow Jews. He speaks about the fact that three times he was beaten with rods, he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked, night and day he was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And aside from this, Paul says, I had the daily pressure of anxiety for all the churches. Perhaps no one suffered more than the Apostle Paul other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And in spite of this, note what Paul says in verse 18 of our text. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, I consider. The old King James says, I reckon. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He is affirming here that in fact, suffering is real. He calls it here the suffering of this present time. So suffering is not an illusion. This is not mind over matter. The fact of the matter is that sufferings are real and sufferings are painful. I want to read to you a piece from the Christian Science Journal. It says, A woman telephoned a Christian science practitioner. That's a false cult, by the way. One night to report that she had terrible pain in her body, that she was unable to retain any food, that she couldn't even think because she felt so bad. She asked for treatment in Christian science. Certainly she wanted to be rid of the debilitating pain, but she also wanted to feel God's healing presence, His all-embracing love, in which there is no pain and no fear. 
As a result of the treatment or prayer, the woman soon fell into a restful sleep and in the morning she woke up perfectly well. Her body was functioning normally, her appetite returned and she was completely free of pain. Her family rejoiced with her over this decisive healing. And the journal goes on to say, how would a practitioner pray in such a case? Here's the advice. Not by trying to manipulate the patient mentally to get rid of physical pain. Not by admitting disease to be a solid material condition. Instead, the healer would realize that the trouble confronting the patient was a misconception of the nature of man, not a fact. A practitioner firmly holds to the true nature of God and man, understanding that because pain and disease are no part of the one perfect God, they are no part of his creation. Not really. The practitioner turns completely away from the material scene and reaches out to God in prayer to see things from a higher standpoint in accord with how God sees his creation, holy, spiritual, and unflawed. This exposes disease as an illusion. Mary Baker Eddy says, that's the founder of the movement, citizens of the world accept the glorious liberty of the children of God and are free. This is our divine right. The illusion of material sense and pain, not divine law, has bound you, entangled you, and uh, held down your limbs, crippled your capacities, enfeebled your body, and defaced the tablet of your being. In God's presence, there is no pain, no fear, no sickness. That is a lie. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he is affirming that pain and suffering is a reality. Christian science is a cult, and while we're talking about that, we can also talk about the Church of Scientology, which is also a cult. These are different religions that carry many different views. Christian science was found by Mary Baker Eddy in 1879. It says that we worship God... We follow the Bible as a holy text, but sin, death, and disease can be removed by focusing on God. Scientology, which is a separate cult, it was found by Ron Hubbard in 1953, it recognizes that each person is a God. They are their own creator, freeing themselves from an imprisoned life. And in this religion, one seeks to reach their full potential. They're different religions, different cults, but both fail, Christian science and Scientology, fail to deal with the reality of sin and suffering. In fact, Christian science says that sin is a delusional state of human thought. Scientology says that man is basically good and you can achieve a pain-free life mentally and physically by following their methods. Christian science, on the other hand, says that salvation is defined as your ability to awaken the grace of God so that sin, death, and disease are removed. Scientology says that one can achieve what they call a clear state and be released from all physical and emotional pain. I was put front and center before those who belonged to the Church of Scientology when I was in college, and I would go to the streets of Clearwater, which is where their headquarters are, and I would do street preaching to all of these members of the Church of Scientology. And only one time in the two years that I did that did I, did I ever see a convert. And the reason for that is because you can't deal with them with the realities of sin and pain and disease because they think it's all a figment of one's imagination. But Paul affirms here in verse 18 the reality of sufferings in this present time. Notice also in verse 18, he's affirming here and also throughout this passage that suffering and glory go together. Another way to put that is suffering and glory are married together. They cannot be divorced. This was certainly true regarding our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Scripture says it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Just as Jesus suffered, so too will those who are united to Jesus by faith who are the sons of God. Following our suffering will come our glory. Peter said in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So by Paul saying that he considers that the sufferings of of this present time are a reality, and the glory that awaits us, he's saying that both have to come even for believers. Suffering comes before glory. There are really two ages. The present one is marked by suffering. The future one is marked by glory. If you skip down to verse 30, Paul puts it all together. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. But before we are glorified, we suffer. Before our glory, we experience pain. Notice also in verse 18, as Paul sets this up, he affirms that the suffering of the present and the glory of the future cannot be compared. Did you notice that? He says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I mean, it's like the Apostle Paul is holding a scale in his hands in verse 18 when he writes these words. And on the one side of the scale are all the sufferings of the present time, all the physical and mental pain, all the sickness, all the sorrow, all the death, all the decay. And on the other side of the scale is the glory of the age to come. And Paul holds this scale up and he says, there is no comparison. Christians have hope in our present suffering because of the glory that awaits us. This is language that Paul loved to use. He used it very similarly when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said this, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jesus also spoke this way. He said there is a new world coming, a new heavens and a new earth. And the apex of the new heavens and the new earth is what is described there by Paul in verse 18, the end of it, the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is the glory that is to be revealed to us? Well, Paul mentions it in verse 19. He describes it there as the revealing of the sons of God. He also describes it in verse 23, the end of that, as the redemption of our bodies. So what Paul is expressing when he describes glory in verse 18 is nothing short of our glorification in our perfected bodies of which we await so that the glory of that side of the scale, our future glory tips down in greater weight when compared to the sufferings of the present time, although the sufferings of the present time are very real, and that's what we really see. We don't see what is beyond us. In other words, Paul is saying that the pain of present suffering fades into insignificance when compared with the Christian's future glory, as hard as that is to believe at times. You also need to recognize that Paul is writing to the church at Rome. This church lived 
in a time period that was very dangerous. Later in this book, in chapter 16, Paul writes about Priscilla and Aquila who were members of this church who risked their necks for Paul's own life. He also writes in chapter 16 about the presence of those in the church who were causing divisions and creating obstacles, serving their own appetites instead of the glory of God. And you know the end of the story, Paul himself ends up in prison and is executed as a criminal, a criminal according to Roman standards because of his preaching of the gospel. You look at our situation in the West, and it's not much unlike that of the Roman time period. In fact, if you fast forward to the 5th century in Rome, you add the invasion of the barbarians where Rome essentially laid down and let the barbarians cross their borders and take over their entire society. That is occurring in the world today. It is occurring in Europe. It is occurring at our own borders. Do you realize that the name Muhammad is the most common name for a boy in London, England. Because Islam is seemingly infiltrating the West. That's on the larger scale. This isn't to mention the personal suffering that is then brought on by international and national crises. So I think we can all relate with Paul here. I think we can all say a hearty amen to verse 18 that there is present suffering in our world, that this is not an illusion, it is a reality. Well, Paul doesn't want to leave us in verse 18. He wants to encourage us, and he does that. In verses 19 through 27, after setting up in verse 18 his thesis that the greater glory of the future is far greater compared to present suffering, He lists three observations that prove the marvelous glory of the believer's eternal future. I hope that your faith is not in this world. I hope that as you came to worship this morning, you expected to be encouraged because that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. He proves the reality of our future glory, the certainty of our future glory in comparison to our present suffering with three observations. First of all, he speaks about the groans of the creation. Secondly, he speaks about the groans of the Christian. And third, he speaks about the groans of the Creator. All three of these groans prove the reality that we have an inner longing of something much greater than what we are experiencing now. We can hope in that. We can place our faith in God for that. And Paul helps us with that in this passage. So, three observations about groaning. First of all, Paul speaks in verses 19 through 22 about the groans of the creation. The groans of the creation are the groans of nature itself. Nature is personified to prove the reality that even nature desires redemption. Notice verse 19, Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God refers back to verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to the children of God. Paul says in verse 19, 4, that's an explanatory word, to explain the fact that he's supporting his thesis in verse 18, the creation waits with eager longing. That is to say that nature is personified as humanity's friend who can't wait for believers to experience their future glory. The creation itself eagerly awaits our future glory. Now, I need to say that the creation can't include good angels because although they are created beings, unlike the rest of God's created beings, they're already in glory. So 
They're not in pain. They are not in suffering. The creation does not include good angels. It also doesn't include fallen angels because they are not after the glory of the sons of God. They're after the destruction of the sons of God. The creation also can't include Satan, who's also a created being for the same reason. Unbelievers can't be included because they, along with fallen angels and Satan, will be thrown into hell, having their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, Revelation 21.8. So the creation that Paul is speaking about is restricted to animate and inanimate aspects of the universe, including the animal kingdom, including rivers and oceans and birds and mountains and plants. It is these aspects of creation, Paul says in verse 19, that waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The revealing of the sons of God. That is described aptly by John when he writes in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is pointing forward to our resurrection, pointing forward to our perfection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the imperishable or the perishable will put on the imperishable, the mortal will put on immortality, that we will be changed in a moment and in the twinkling of an eye when the trumpet of God sounds. Nature, in a sense, waits with eager longing for this. Nature has, as the King James says, an earnest expectation. That phrase, uh, eager longing, apo keradakia, is derived from the word kera, which is the word for head. So it has the idea of waiting with head raised, standing on tiptoes, craning one's neck to see into the future. That is what nature is doing. Creation is longing for you to be clothed with glory, and there is a sense in which creation itself is longing for itself to be clothed with glory. You say, well, that's sort of strange. Well, this sort of personification of nature is actually more common than you think, and we began worship this morning, if you were paying attention with such personification. Psalm 98 says that the rivers clap and the hills sing for joy. Psalm 96 says, the heavens are glad, the earth rejoices, the sea roars, the field exults, the trees sing for joy. And why? Well, the psalmist says, at the prospect of longing for the Lord's coming to judge the earth, the world for unrighteousness, and his people for their faithfulness. In fact, turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 55, because Isaiah really uses nature itself as an illustration of the blessing of God's salvation upon his church in verse 12 for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing all the trees of the field shall clap their hands instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle it shall make a name for the lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off this is a description of the revealing of the sons of God, to borrow Paul's language in Romans chapter 8, that the elect will appear as glorious as the fixed order of the creation, with blossoming and blooming and glory. Jesus spoke this way in Matthew 13. He says, Then the righteous, that is consummated kingdom, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Daniel 12.3 also speaks this way. It puts it this way. Like the brightness of the sky above will be God's people. Like the stars forever and ever. 
So as saints in eternal glory, we will, let me put it to you this way, reflect the glowing glory of our Savior. That is the revealing of the sons of God, our full perfection. And what Paul is saying in verses 19 through 22 is that creation itself eagerly longs for this. It aspires for this. And you say, why? Well, notice verse 20. Paul explains, for the creation was subjected to futility. Stop right there for a minute. The futility marking nature comes obviously from the curse of sin, right? The universe is under futility. It has been frustrated. It cannot fulfill its ordained ends. It is unable to fulfill its full capacity. It's become incompetent to a degree and even violent. The violence of the animal kingdom, the violence of the weather and hurricanes and tsunamis. Paul says, creation was subjected to futility. Notice this, not willingly. In other words, it was acted upon by God because of Him who subjected it. Do you see that in verse number 20? When did God subject creation? Well, all you have to do is turn back to Genesis chapter 3 with the curse to Adam. He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Cursed is the ground. That was God's subjugation in futility of creation. You could actually put it the way the psalmist does in Psalm 107.34 when he says a fruitful land was turned into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. That occurred at the moment Adam decided to eat of its fruit. Creation was subjected, as it were, to futility. It wasn't able to accomplish its ordained ends. It turned from perfection to violence, to chaos in a sense. Isaiah puts it this way. He says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. That's Isaiah chapter 24. So here is the picture. Man committed sin, but God commissioned the curse. He subjected creation to futility. It was an act of God because of Satan's deception, because of man's sin, but God commissioned the curse. And that's why Paul is adamant there in verse 20 that God subjected it. God subjected it. God pronounced the curse. And because God pronounced the curse, only God can remove the curse, right? That's why Paul adds at the end of verse 20, God subjected it, comma, notice your Bibles, in hope. There was hope tucked away in the curse, and that was found in verses 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that there was coming one who would be the son of man, the son of the woman, he would be the holy son of God who would redeem and remove the curse and have dominion over the universe. And part of that hope is amazingly both desired and will include the rebirth of the cosmos. That's why creation groans 
for this reality. Notice verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation waits with eager longing, verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God, verse 21, so that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. It's longing for its liberation, nature is. Its futile frustration will not last forever. It will be set free or liberated, as verse 21 says, from its corruption. Phtharos is the word there for corruption. It describes our universe which is corrupt, or we could say perishable or decaying. It's been subjected to a never-ending cycle of decline and decay and death and decomposition. You could say that creation is out of step. Creation is out of joint. It can't fulfill its original purpose because of the judgment of sin and the sentence of the curse. But Paul says here, notice the text, creation has hope. It longs for the day when it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This simply means that the same glory of perfection and restoration experienced by God's elect sons, when they are set free from the suffering of this world because of sin, there will be a type of glory experienced by creation itself, a type of perfection. Calvin says this, all creatures in the cosmos will be partakers of the same glory with the sons of God, for God will restore to a perfect state the world, now fallen together with mankind. Now I need to say that the salvation of creation, the resurrection of creation, does not mean that your dogs and cats are going to be resurrected or saved. We don't want to speculate too far, but in a very real sense, Paul is saying that creation, nature, the cosmos, will experience a regeneration, a restoration, a liberation, a reconciliation, but the focus is the children of God. The focus is the redemption of the children of God, and creation will not experience their redemption until we experience our full redemption. And by the way, Scripture is replete about this theme of liberation, being set free, Creation being set free, Paul describes that here in verse 21, but Jesus described it in terms of regeneration. He said in Matthew 19, 28, that there is coming a new world. Uh, the word that is used there in Matthew chapter 19 is the Greek word meaning regeneration. There's going to be a regeneration of the cosmos. Peter in Acts chapter 3 describes it as a restoration, the restoring of all things. Paul describes it in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 as a reconciliation of all things to himself. So Paul is describing a liberation, a restoration, a reconciliation. You could even describe it as a rejuvenation. Peter describes it that way in 2 Peter chapter 3. He speaks about a new heavens and a new earth, a rejuvenated world. In fact, that's an important passage. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3 just for a moment. Because there's also the theme of not only rejuvenation, but also purification. In verse 7 of 2 Peter 3, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, 
and a thousand years as one day. Skip down to verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The fire that Peter speaks about is not a fire that will destroy the universe. This is a fire that will purify the universe. It will renew the universe. It will separate the dross. It will purify and make the universe shine like pure gold. So Paul is describing in Romans 8 what all of Scripture describes concerning creation. A liberation, a regeneration, a restoration, a reconciliation, a rejuvenation, a purification, even a harmonization. We read about that in the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah speaks in very wonderful language that captures our hearts. That the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a child shall lead them. A nursing child will play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This is the hope of creation, and it's the hope of God and man. But what Paul is describing here that instinctually takes place within creation, inanimate and animate, irrational aspects of God's creation like birds and trees and rivers and mountains and dogs He describes it as a type of groaning. Notice that in verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That is a summary verse for all that he said up to this point, beginning in verse 19. All of creation groans together. There has been a groaning together, a collective cry of the universe. The word groaning there is denadzo. It's the same Greek word that was used to describe the desperate cries for deliverance among the Israelites during their bondage in Egypt. Paul is comparing creation's groans to desperate cries. And notice the metaphor he uses. He says it's like, the end of verse 22, the pains of childbirth until now. Well, that makes sense because just as Eve was cursed with pain and childbirth, so too does creation have its own childbirth pains. And like Eve's pain, which yielded the birth of children and the birth of a world and the birth of a a Messiah, so too will creation's labor pains result in the joyful birth of a glorious new universe. So creation is not like rational man. So the instincts and hope for a better world, you don't need to think as if, Nature itself has a mind of its own. This is personification. But it's describing the fact that you can see all throughout nature this groaning, this collective cry for a new universe. And you even see it in the changing season. Perhaps not so much in Florida where we live, but certainly in other aspects and parts of the world. Nature is constantly attempting to renew itself every year. But what happens? Thorns and thistles get in the way. You do have to weed out your garden, don't you? You do have to weed out your flower beds. And you plant and you wait for a harvest. It comes, but soon winter comes, and with that comes death. And then spring uh, tries to bring about a perfect creation again, but spring leads to summer and the heat, and summer leads to fall, and fall to winter. 
As one writer says, it's as if the entire creation sets up a grand symphony of sighs or groans. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and I quote, Poor old nature tries every year to defeat death and decay and disintegration, but it cannot. It fails every time. It still goes on trying as if it feels things should be different, but it never succeeds. You say, what is the point of Paul giving to us a little lesson on creation? Here's the point, don't miss it. He's saying that if even creation, irrational, inanimate and animate creatures and plants have the hope of a better world, then where is your hope? Why have you lost hope? You see it in the changing of seasons. You see it in nature. You see that creation longs for this. Creation looks forward with eager longing for this new universe. Where is the Christian's hope? Well, I'm of the opinion that the Lord allows certain things in nature to remind us of a greater hope. We recently, as many of you know, purchased a dog, something I said I would never do. But as people keep reminding me, my personality has changed since my headaches, so I guess I'm guilty of being a different person. Wonderful dog. Her name is Lady. But I call her a holy dog because not only is she obedient, but she fasts until everyone is home in the evening. So during the day as people are coming and going, she's always at the window, watching and waiting and longing. There is a sense even in dogs and cats, a sense that this world is not all it should be, a sense that there is something missing, a desire for comfort, a desire for peace, a desire for reconciliation, a desire for liberation, A desire for a new universe when all is okay and all worries are free and there is no pain and there is no suffering. Paul is saying we have hope that things won't always be as they are. And after telling us in verse 18 of this greater glory of the future in comparison to present suffering, he first proves it by pointing in verses 19 through 22 to the groans of the creation. But the groans of the creation now take us secondly to the groans of the Christian. Verses 23 through 25, and we don't need to spend as much time on this because you're familiar with your own groans, right? The groaning of this world within the heart of every person. Notice verse 23. He says, and not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When he says here, we ourselves, he can only be referring to Christians. Let me be clear about that. Christians, that he has repeatedly said in this passage, on more than one occasion, some half a dozen times at least, that we are already adopted sons of God. But he says here that we ourselves, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, namely, comma, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting the homecoming of the celebration of our adoption as sons when we get to heaven. And we experience the redemption of our bodies, which will take place on Resurrection Day. Notice how he describes it. He says, we groan inwardly. And can I add here that sometimes we groan outwardly? especially the older that we get. We recognize the fact that our bodies are frail and fragile. We recognize the fact that the flesh is weak. We recognize that the flesh gets in the way and keeps us from living a fulfilled Christian life. So we await with inward groans the redemption of our bodies, which will include the full redemption of our spirit and perfect 
perfect conformity to the image of Christ, we groan for it just like creation groans. It's not that we don't recognize we're new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, old things have passed away, but we await our full perfection. It's not that we've not already been adopted, but we are awaiting our adoption as sons in God's presence when we will see the Son and look like the Son. We will be as He is, 1 John 3, 2. But right now, verse 29, go to that, we are being conformed to the image of His Son, and that requires pain. That requires groaning, spiritual trials, physical affliction, all of it designed to conform you and I to the image of Christ. But we're not there yet. And because we're not there, we're honest about that fact, and we ourselves groan inwardly. And why do we groan? Well, it might surprise you, Paul's reason. He says, because we have, verse 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. You might think, upon initial observation, that we wouldn't groan because we have the Spirit, and yet, Paul says, that's exactly why you groan. Because the Holy Spirit is a reminder, listen to this, both of what we have and what we do not have, of what we already possess in Christ, and yet what we possess. And so the inward Holy Spirit causes us to groan. The first fruits of the Spirit calls us the pain of realizing the pain of this life because we want the glory of the next life. And I should just say this as well. The first fruits of the Spirit here is describing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you were here with us last week, we spoke about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every true Christian. So when he speaks about the first fruits of the Spirit, he's using an agricultural term, a farming term. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's like a pledge that a full harvest will come because Paul knows that we are weak. We are like farmers that need some hope in our present suffering. We need to know that the harvest of glory is coming. And so God has given us the first fruits of the Spirit to empower us. He's given us the first fruits of the Spirit to sustain us when we are weak and weary. And by the way, it was the Feast of Weeks, which was a celebration in the Old Testament of the reaping of the first fruits, which Paul probably has in mind here. And the Greek term for the Feast of Weeks was Pentecost. And what happened on Pentecost? The pouring out of the Spirit. Paul also describes this language of the Spirit given in other places as commercial terminology. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.22, he says the Spirit is our guarantee. In that context, it's different than first fruits. That's an agricultural term. In 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks about the guarantee of the Spirit. The word guarantee is sometimes translated as pledge. It refers to a first installment, a deposit, a down payment, the guaranteeing of the completion of a purchase. So what Paul's saying in verse 23 is that God has promised in the future and He has promised to us something in the future that He has given to us in the present, namely the pledge of the Holy Spirit, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit as we await the final harvest of our final salvation, our final glorification. And because we know that, verse 23, we groan inwardly. We want what we have been promised badly. And suffering in this life reminds us even more how much we want it. 
And the Spirit working in our hearts which indwells us to make us more like Christ makes us want it even more. That's why we cry out with Paul as he said in chapter 7 and verse 24, O wretched man that I am. We want to resemble Christ perfectly now in spirit and body and we don't so we groan. We want to avoid death and decay and sorrow and sickness and pain. But we know we can't in this present life. So we groan. We say with Paul, for in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then Paul says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See, the problem is not what we don't know, the problem is what we know. What we've been guaranteed causes us to groan and to mourn our present suffering. But our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says, Philippians 3. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So we groan. But we groan with hope. Creation has its own hope. The Christian has his or her own hope as well. Notice verse 24, Paul goes on to explain, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? For in this hope we were saved. We don't attain future salvation by the demonstration of hope. We attain salvation by the demonstration of faith. It's not like we demonstrate faith to be saved and then we have to demonstrate hope to remain saved. We are saved by faith, Ephesians 2.8, but we are also saved in hope. As Paul says here in verse 24, we have faith which saves because we have our hope fixed on what God has promised for those in Christ. So you can't have hope without faith. Faith alone saves, but faith brings with it hope. So you could define hope this way. Hope is faith looking forward. Christian hope is faith looking forward. Christian hope is not wishful thinking. This is not a wing and a prayer. This is not simply a desire for something to occur. That is the opposite of Christian hope. Christian hope is described with certainty. Christian hope is described in Hebrews chapter 6 as an anchor of the soul, knowing that Jesus is our forerunner to clear the way for us to enter heaven. So Paul says, in this hope we were saved. But hope can't be seen with physical eyes or it no longer remains hope. So notice Paul says, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. In other words, hope is no longer hope when the thing hoped for is realized. And Paul's point here is that it's not been realized yet. So we have hope. But verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with what? Patience. Patience is the mark of a true Christian, someone truly indwelt by the Spirit of God. Patience in what? This isn't talking about being patient with other people. This is not talking about some subjective character quality of patience. This is speaking about patience in the midst of our suffering. Patience in the midst of our pain. Patience in the midst of our groaning. You do know that groaning is not the same as grumbling. Groaning was what the children of Israel did in order to be delivered from Egypt. Grumbling is what they did in the wilderness and it resulted not in their deliverance but their judgment. When Paul says we groan inwardly, he's not describing Christians that complain about everything that's going on in the world. He's not describing Christians that complain about their church and their wife and their husband and their children and their community and their job. He's describing 
Christians who are patient and endure that suffering. They aren't grumblers. They're groaners, but they're not grumblers. I would also say this, both groaning and grinning are part of the Christian life. Paul says that we are to rejoice with those that rejoice and we are to weep with those that weep. So there is a time for grinning and there is a time for groaning. We do a disservice to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when we grin at them when they are groaning. We must groan and learn to mourn with those that are struggling, those that are faltering, those that are enduring trials. We aren't to beat them up. There is a time for grinning. There is a time for groaning. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. And by the way, we're not merely meant to groan inwardly because of what we are going through. We are also meant to groan outwardly because of what others go through in the sense that we do it in a way that doesn't look down on other Christians. The church of Rome was a healthy church, but um, Paul said this to them. This is chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. In other words, we are to stoop low with those who are suffering, to be with them in their suffering. He says in chapter 14 and verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. When someone else is suffering, it is not our job to be the spiritual mentor and lecturer to tell them all the things that they are doing wrong. It is to weep with them and cry with them and mourn with them and groan with them and allow them to confess their sin to us so that we can comfort them with the comfort of Christ that we ourselves have been comforted with. That's what Paul is saying. He says in chapter 14, verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another brother. He says in chapter 15 and verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. To me, this sounds like more than inward groaning. This is outward groaning. This is mourning with those that mourn. This is putting our arm around one another and weeping with each other in the midst of their pain because we're all united to Christ, right? Which means we're all united to one another. As we remember, quote Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That matches what Paul says here. Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So groaning is a reality. It is not an illusion. And the future glory that we will have is incomparable to the groanings we have now. And really, to put that a better way, the groanings we have now is incomparable to the glory that we will have. We see it all around us. The groans of the creation, number one. Number two, the groans of the Christian. But in a staggering way, Paul closes this little thought He moves from the groans of the creation and the groans of the Christian, number three, to the groans of the Creator Himself. This is staggering that Paul would point to the third person of the Trinity as one who groans with us. If this isn't proof that our future glory is certain, what is? If this isn't proof that God's desire and God's will to accomplish all things after the counsel of His purposes will not come to fruition then there is no proof. Notice verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us 
with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I remember writing a paper on these verses. I think it was in college. It may have been in seminary. I don't even remember what conclusion I came to. But as I studied this passage this week, I want to confess to you that I'm still not exactly sure what Paul is saying. It could be that Paul is saying that our groans are the Spirit's groans in the sense that the Spirit helps us groan in a way that when we don't know what to say in our prayers, God hears us anyway. It could be that that's all Paul is saying. But I think he's saying more than that. Notice verse 26. He says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This means the Spirit is doing something similar to what creation is doing and what the Christian is doing. He helps us in our weakness. This would include any weakness, struggles with temptation, doubts, the need for direction and leading. But in particular, Paul has in mind our weakness in relation to prayer. In other words, sometimes we don't know how to pray, right? We've all experienced this. Paul says the Spirit helps us in this weakness to help us know how to pray. In fact, he does more than that. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for us. You say, could Paul really say this? Could Paul really admit here that he had a weakness in knowing how to pray? I mean, you read through Scripture, some of the most eloquent prayers were written by Paul. He said in Ephesians, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I mean, who could pray better than that? But you need to understand that not all of Paul's prayers were inspired. Paul was a human being, and like us, he struggled in his prayers. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I mentioned that in my introduction, Paul prayed three times that the Lord would remove the thorn in his flesh. And each time God said no. Paul didn't even know how to pray. He prayed the wrong way. He prayed for God to remove it, and God said, no, I'm not going to remove it. So there are obviously things we know to pray for, like God's kingdom to come, His will to be done, for peace, for strength, for patience. But Paul's point here is, there are times when we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And at those times, Paul says, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. This is a glorious thought, because in John 17, we learn that Christ intercedes for us. In fact, Paul affirms that in verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one indeed who is interceding for us. But here in verse 26, Paul explicitly says it's not only the Son of God, it is the Spirit of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness by interceding for us. That's the thought of verse 26. Now there's obviously a mystery to this. And the best way I can put it to you is you can understand Jesus praying for you because he took on human flesh. You can understand Jesus praying for you because you read his prayers. You read his actual words. Go read John 17. You know the prayers of Jesus 
But notice what Paul says at the end of verse 26. He says, The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The idea is that the Holy Spirit is our inward helper. He helps us in our prayers to ensure that we're saying the right thing. My oldest child, Gracie, has been accepted into college and I've been helping her this past week write a paper and if she does well in the paper, she might be awarded a scholarship, so no pressure on her. It's only $10,000, but I want to do everything that I can to help her and so I've been editing this paper all week. You could think of the Holy Spirit as the spiritual editor of our souls. He corrects, he improves our weak prayers. Now I readily admit I don't know what the groans are in terms of content, nor do I know how it works. But I'm grateful that the Spirit does this because I'll tell you this much, public prayers are far easier than private prayers. Privately, my tongue is tied often. Privately, I have no clue what to pray because I don't know the will of God. I don't know the mind of God. There are times I don't even know what I want because I want so badly God's will that I'm frozen to even pray what I want because I want what He wants. And guess what? The Spirit knows what I want. But more than that, the Spirit knows what God wants and He intercedes for me and He intercedes for you. Whatever the content, It doesn't matter because verse 27 says, the Father searches hearts. He searches hearts. That is, He knows you and I inside and out. He searches hearts and He also knows, verse 27, what is the mind of the Spirit? Well, that's kind of obvious. If you're orthodox, as a trinity, each member knows the other inside and out. But Paul's point is, The end result of the Spirit's help with our prayers is always successful. Because He knows our hearts, because He knows the mind of the Spirit, the Father, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You could reverse that. The Spirit knows the will of the Father and the Son. The Father knows the will of the Son and the Spirit because it's all the same will. So it would make sense that you would want the Spirit to intercede for you because He knows the will of God, because the Spirit is God. Very comforting thought. That the Holy Spirit, with inarticulate, inaudible, inexpressible utterings or groans, identifies with your own groans. That's the point to see. He shares the same longing you have for your full redemption and future glory. In fact, we can go a step beyond that by process of implication and deduction. God loves you so much that the Son and the Spirit intercede for you, not only concerning the end of your salvation, that is your future glory, but also the means to the end, that is the trials that you experience, the pain that you experience, so that the Spirit intercedes with perfect prayers to accomplish God's perfect will, not only regarding the end result, our future glory, but every single detail in between. God has already written the book of your life. Read the Psalms, Psalm 139. Before we even took a breath, God wrote your life in a book. The day you were born, the day you would die, and every single event in between. Not only do we have the surety of God's sovereignty over our lives, but we have the Holy Son of God and the Holy Spirit interceding to ensure that nothing, 
Nothing will affect the children of God apart from what God has ordained and whatever he ordains is right and whatever he ordains will come to pass and it will all follow in course and in correlation with the divine sovereign purposes of his will from before time began. So you can be confident. You can be confident because of the groans of the creation. Look outside. Look at the longing of nature itself. You can be confident because of the groans of the Christian, your own groanings of wanting something different, better, and greater. You can be confident because of the groans of the Spirit. The Spirit is groaning with creation. The Spirit is groaning with the Christian to fulfill His divine purposes. You can be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. And that brings us to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Very likely, the most important verse in this entire chapter. But you'll have to wait till next week to discover its meaning. Until then, and until our future glory... Let us learn to groan, but let us learn to groan with a grin instead of grumbling because we know that God is sovereign. Let us praise Him for grace instead of pitying ourselves in our pain. Let us hope with patience instead of hating our circumstances. Let us worship this triune God who has planned everything out to the last detail and is working even now 24-7 to accomplish His purposes for you, for the church, for His kingdom, and for His own glory. To God be the glory great things he has done. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.